I've entitled today, I Believe He Ascended Into Heaven. <clears throat> For those of you who follow such things, that's obviously a quote from the Apostles' Creed. Um, and I was thinking this week, I actually have been thinking for some time. You realize it's probably been three or four Easter since I actually delivered an Easter sermon. Not complaining because we've been doing uh, musicals, including the, the song you just heard was the title from last year's Easter musical that Kenna wrote uh, that we did. But I've been thinking about his ascension. So today we're going to address, and we're going to read, we're going to address briefly what Paul describes as the mystery of godliness. It's not such a mystery after all. In the midst of that, we're going to spend a moment to understand the vindication of the Lord Jesus. He was truly vindicated. And then we're going to spend some time focusing on the ascension Back to heaven and what that means to us, what that means to you and what that means to me. Sometimes we neglect the truth or the message of Christ's ascension back to the Father. We don't ignore it, but we don't spend enough time thinking about it and what that means. And so if you uh, will turn to First Timothy 3. Try to get this frog out of my throat. Just call me Kermit. I don't know where it came from. Uh, if you would stand while I read uh, the sacred scriptures, uh, we're just going to read verse 14 through 16. Paul's writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Now, you see in just probably every Bible you're holding, you see at the end of godliness, there's a colon there, which means what's following is the description of the mystery of godliness. He was manifested or revealed in the flesh, vindicated, or some of your Bibles will say justified by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up. Everybody say taken up. In glory. You may be seated. Paul, in, in this letter, he just, it's, he's writing some very practical instructions in chapters one, two, and three. What's the, what are the qualifications of an elder? What is the, what are the qualifications of a deacon? How, how to treat one another? And then he's talking or writing to his spiritual son. And then he says, I've been writing these things so you know how to behave. And then it's like in the middle of his letter, you'd think this would come at the end of his letter, but in the middle of his letter, he begins what some people have described as a hymn or a poem at the end here. And a lot of your Bibles will show it in poetry form on the page. And he begins to just to, to deliver this mantra. But before that, he says, we confess to the mystery of godliness. Now, the word mystery here 
is not the word is not the mystery that we can never know. You know, you watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie and you get to the end of the movie and you realize there is no end. If you ever watched an Alfred Hitchcock movie, it never ends. It just stops and you have to figure what in the world? Okay. What happened? What's going on? I mean, that's not the kind of mystery Paul's talking. He's talking about a mystery that was once hidden, but isn't anymore. As a matter of fact, Ephesians says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. You say, well, that then he just revealed it to the apostles and prophets. Well, the same Paul, writing at about the same time to the church at Colossae, writes this, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. There was a time when no one understood the mystery of godliness. There was a time when no one could grasp what God was really after. But now, Paul writes, now that has been made manifest. That has been revealed to us. And we can understand now the plan of God. People couldn't totally understand under the old covenant the plan that he was after. They saw the shadows and they saw scriptures about Jesus, but they couldn't put it all together. But Paul says now we're putting it all together. So this thing that was hidden for ages is now made manifest. And it's now made manifest to you and to me. And then he begins to write what I call the mystery revealed. He's the unveiling. Like I said, he he writes the mystery of godliness, colon. (laughs) Random thought. My brother had colon cancer, and he had surgery, and he removed some of it, so now I call him semicolon. He's all excited about that, too. The mystery revealed begins with this statement, manifest or manifested in the flesh. Or some of your Bibles will say revealed in the flesh. So this is this this poem, so to speak, is the mystery of godliness that he was first and foremost manifested to us in the flesh. And John, you know, the verse John writes this and the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Capital W. And if you remember Revelation 19.13. It says his name was called the word of God. He became flesh. He walked the earth just like we walked the earth. He functioned as a human being. Here where we live. John. Writes in his first letter. And I don't have a slide for this. But the son of God was manifested for this purpose. So he's manifested in the flesh. And John tells us the purpose for which he was manifested. He says the Son of God was manifested for this purpose, to destroy, everybody say destroy, not hinder, not slow down, but to destroy the works of the devil. That's that's, that's the reason he came. Amen? So God... To these folks, God coming in the flesh was beyond comprehension. And this is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other E's had such a problem. When Jesus would do anything 
that would exhibit that he was that he was God or that he was connected to God the Father. They could not comprehend. Even though the angel said to Mary, you have a child and his name will be called Emmanuel, which comes out of the Old Testament, which means God with us, God among us. He lived among us. We'll come back to that in a moment. Well, actually right now. Again, I'm going through this fast, so just hang on. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Philippians chapter 2 where we see the process of Christ descending to humanity. And we could spend, we're not going to, but we could spend a lot of time. But it tells us that he existed in the form of God. We know that. We know that he existed in the form of God. And he did not grasp equality with God as something he tried to hold. He didn't feel like he had to grasp that or hold on to equality with his father. He was totally secure in who he was in the father. Totally. It says that he emptied himself or made of himself no reputation. Now that doesn't mean he laid aside his deity because he was just as much God when he was walking on the earth as he is in heaven. He didn't lay aside his deity, but he laid aside his prerogatives. He chose to function as a human being. And he chose to do what he did by the power of the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you. And dwells in me. And he submitted himself to the humiliation. Think about it. The humiliation of being a human human being. Think, you're God. You're in heaven and you're God. And you decide you're going to come to earth and be a human being. That's, that's kind of lowering yourself. The Bible says he willingly became a servant. Willingly. Became a servant. And first and foremost, he was a servant of his father. And he was made in the likeness of mankind. And we know that because of all of that, that he was obedient to the cross. He submitted himself to death. So he was manifested in the flesh, became one of us. He died. And then it says he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit. Vindicated. Why? Did Jesus need to be vindicated? We understand. I may have the verse later in my notes. I don't remember. But we understand that he was tempted in every way that we are, but he was yet without sin. So here's this perfect, sinless creature who now is being vindicated. How was he vindicated? And that was because God, by the Holy Spirit, energized a dead body. Everybody say dead. He was not in a coma. He was not faking it. He energized this dead body and he came back to life. Jesus on the cross became shame. He became sin. He became the object of God's wrath. Which is why at a certain point he says... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Indicating to a slow Florida panhandle boy like me that God had forsaken him. Indicating that there was some reason that God had turned his face away from the sun hanging on the cross. And that's because in that moment 
He had become all of the shame, all of the sin that you and I have committed in our whole lives. He became the object of God's wrath where we should be the object of God's wrath. God took aim at the sin. God took aim with his wrath, which is just. It's not that he's just pitching a fit. God's just wrath took aim at our sin. But before he could fire his gun, Jesus stepped in and took the bullet. For you and for me. And so now here's this human being. The Bible says he didn't just take our sins. The Bible says he became sin. He became sin. So sin is hanging on the cross. Forsaken by the Father. Dead. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take him down off of that cross. And put him in Joseph's tomb. We sang about it earlier. And then things happen. And then God says, let's vindicate the son. He took the sin of mankind. He paid the penalty. The penalty's been paid. Your debt's been paid. My debt has been paid. We no longer have to bear the guilt or the shame of our sin. Because Jesus became our substitute. In that moment, it was a vindication from the wrongful verdict that he had been issued or had been issued against him by the sinful human court. And it was a declaration of his righteousness. He bore a wrong verdict, but he did it willingly. Are you tracking with me? I found a quote by a guy. <coughs> if Rob was in here, I'd get him to pronounce his name. Uh, Geard Hardis Voss. He was uh, pre- the professor of biblical theology at Princeton. He's sometimes called the father of reformed biblical theology. Great quote, and I do have a slide for this, and it says this. Christ's resurrection was the de facto declaration of God in regard to his being just. His quickening or his being raised from the dead bears in itself the testimony of the justification. God, through suspending the forces of death operating on him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. Watch this. Next slide. In other words, resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. Everybody say annulled. And that's what happened to your sin. Jesus bore it. He paid the penalty. God raised him from the dead and vindicated him and said, the sin of mankind has been annulled. And Jesus gained victory over the power and the grip of sin. Luke writes, God raised him up, losing, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It goes on to say he was seen by angels. In other words, he was displayed in victory before the heavenly host. Colossians 2.15 tells us that he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. When it says he disarmed them, it means he stripped them. 
and and the put them to open shame is a is the terminology of a parade and triumphing over them is really a word that we get our word trophies from so Christ dies on the cross he gains victory over the kingdom of darkness and he parades his his uh conquerees before all the heavenly host as his trophies of victory and here we, human beings, we submit ourselves to the stupidity that the devil tempts us with because we believe what he tells us. We believe his lies. Jesus was victory. The Bible says he was proclaimed among the nations. Still being. How, Paul writes in Romans, how shall they believe unless they hear? And how shall they hear except someone proclaim to them? He said he was believed on in the world. I won't tell you there's no believing upon Christ in the next life. Once we leave this life and we breathe our last breath, there, there is no believing then. And then the final part of this poem or hymn is that he was taken up in glory. He was taken up. He, was, he ascended into heaven and he sat down. Now, we're going to see this from several different angles, but Hebrews 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single, everybody say single. See, he didn't have to do this over and over again. A single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God because there was nothing left for him to do. He sat down. And so that brings us to our third and final point, which is, I believe, he ascended. Mark describes this when he says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. They watched him. They watched him ascend. And so when he ascended to heaven, the first thing we see is his work had just begun. Some people think that that he abandoned earth or that he abandoned us or he went off and left us on our own. But the truth is that his work had just begun. It had not ended. Well, again, Luke's writing, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Everybody say began. He had just begun. He had just begun to do his work. What was the consummation of his work? What is the consummation of his work? It's when he prayed, your kingdom come on earth like it is in heaven. That's what he was after. He was after assembling a people. So it's not cessation when he leaves the earth and goes and sits by the Father, but it's continuation of what he started when he was here. He just started it. We get to finish it. Another thing that we see in his ascension is that he reassumes or assumes his seat of enthronement as a conquering king. We just, I just described to you Colossians 2.15, how that he conquered the kingdom of darkness as his trophies. And the, the leaders have just asked Jesus, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Are you the Messiah? Dangerous question. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Interesting terminology for God the Father. And coming with the clouds of heaven. You will see 
the Son. You'll see me seated by the power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this this Pharisee, whoever it was that asked this question, immediately through his mind goes Daniel 7 that says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him with the clouds of heaven. So he knows, and of course that continues to say, he was given a kingdom and a dominion. This guy knows that now Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and you will see me seated at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of power in authority. You will see that. Revelation 3.21 tells us that Jesus conquered and then sat down with his father on the throne. Now what happens that he sits down? Is he on vacation? Well, not really. He's not on vacation, but he's sitting down. By the way, interestingly enough, the only other time we see him standing, if you'll remember, is when Stephen is being stoned to death. And he looks up and he sees, he looks up into heaven. By the way, here's your picture of the Trinity if you want one. He looks up into heaven and the Bible says that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and he saw Jesus standing. It's only the other time we see Jesus standing. Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. There's your Trinity. Why was Jesus standing? Because Stephen was about to join him. We Christians, we always think of death as a bad thing. Well, I'm not ready to go right now, so y'all just keep your guns to yourself. But death's not a bad thing for a believer in Jesus Christ. It's just a promotion. Again, I'm not hurrying it up. What is he doing? Well, the Bible says that he is our mediator. In our high priest. He is a our unique mediator between God and man. Because he writes to Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. He's the only one. He's the only one that has ever been. And he's the only one that will ever be. You can go to all of the tombs of all of the other gods worshipped by people around the world, and you will find bones in those tombs. You can take a tour of the Holy Land, and you can go to the tomb where Jesus was was buried, and you will not find any bones. You will find where Jesus was, but not where he is. Interestingly enough, when they went to find him in the tomb, all they saw was the linen cloth, and Jesus was OCD. Because he folded up the linen cloth nice and neat and left it there. A man after my own heart. One God. One high priest. Our high priest or our intercessor. Oh, goodness. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. And look, saints who indeed is interceding for us. I wish I had an intercessor. You do. 
It's good to have an intercessor on the earth praying for you. But you have a you have one mediator, one high priest who's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you. A little further in Hebrews, it says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For you. Say for me. See, it's easy to say interceding for them, but he's interceding for me. And he's interceding for you. Without the ascension, Adam, you might want to hit that thermostat a little bit. Without the ascension, there's no intercession. Without the ascension, he's not sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. But he did. That's why I believe that he ascended. He goes on to say he is our advocate. He is our advocate. A lot of people cannot afford the, the fees of an attorney. You know, anywhere from four to $800 an hour. But you have an attorney sitting at the right hand of the Father. You have an advocate who's testifying on your behalf. The, the, the word there for advocate is the same word, parakletos, that we get our word comforter. Every, everywhere else in Scripture, that word refers to the Holy Spirit, but in this verse, it refers to the Lord Jesus, who's sitting at the right. First John just simply says, we have an advocate. The, the, the enemy, we know that the devil appears before God's throne to accuse. He is the accuser of the brethren. We know that he does that. And when he does, Jesus is sitting there. He's your counsel. He's your advocate. And he says, uh, no. I paid the debt for that one. Nope. And the father says, sorry. And the devil comes back and says, yeah, but he did this. And Jesus said, nope. I took care of that one too. That one, yep, that one's taken care of too. Thanks. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus didn't forgive you, didn't just forgive your sins of what you had done in the past. He forgives your sins for what you do today. The blood, the blood never stopped. I had a lady leave out of here one morning all offended at me because I said um, that the blood of Jesus went down the cross into the ground and no one has ever been able to gather it up. And, and of course, I was quoting Spurgeon when I said that. She never came back. I ain't going to say what I'm thinking. <laughs> but the point is, the blood came down the cross. It hit the ground and it can never be gathered up. What does that mean? It's still working. It's still working. It's still, it's still paying the atonement for our sins. Mm. Because of that, our high priest, our advocate is able, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And yes, he has been tempted. In every respect as we have, yet without sin. This is who you have. Now, this is not a fairy tale, saints. This is not some story that, that little kids believe in. This is the truth. Everybody say the truth. This is the truth of God that he sits next to the Father. 
He understands what you're going to. He's been tempted with everything. I can't conceive of this, but he's been tempted with everything that you and I are tempted with, and yet he never once succumbed. But he can sit there and say to the Father, "I, I remember that. I remember that. And probably one of the most important parts of his ascension is the empowerment of his church. The empowerment of his church. And he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Later on, Luke writes this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and being received from the Father, having received, I should put my glasses on, having received from the Father the promise of, Of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this. That you yourselves. Are seeing. And hearing. Meaning. The outpouring. Of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost. To empower. His church. Jesus said. I will ask of the Father. And he will give you. Another helper. They probably remembered that. Jesus said. If I must. Go away so the helper can come, the helper being the Holy Spirit. He said, I must go to my Father, and when I go to my Father, I'm going to ask my Father to send you the Holy Spirit to empower you and to help you. So without the ascension, we don't have the empowerment. That's what he said. But we do have an ascension, and we do have his empowerment. We do have his Holy Spirit that helps us. And and his Holy Spirit in the earth is better than the physical presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus, because he laid aside his prerogatives, because he emptied himself, Jesus was one man in one place. Now, he did some great stuff, pretty good stuff. Bible, you know, John says if we wrote down everything that he did, all the books in the world wouldn't contain it. But he was still one man in one place doing one thing at a time. And here we are today. He ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to empower and gift his church. And now we have millions of people around the world full of his Holy Spirit doing his work in the earth better than his physical presence. And Peter said, this is fulfilled. Joel 2.28 was fulfilled by Christ's ascension. When Jesus goes to heaven, Joel 2.28, Joel 2, you can read it later, it basically says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All flesh. Peter, I've heard sermons, and you may have too, Peter said, this is that. And he said it right here in this verse. This is that which you have heard. This is it today. Joel 2.28. Every one of them knew Joel 2.28. They could quote it. And Peter says to them, this is that. Because he ascended. Because he went to sit 
the right hand of the Father. What's the result of that? There's a lot of them. I'm just going to give us two today. What's the result of the empowerment by the Holy Spirit? Well, for one thing, it says that they spoke the word of God with boldness. You can find that in Acts 4.31. They found a boldness, a confidence to speak the word of God that they did not have before. They found a boldness to say what they needed to say to people who needed to hear, and they would not have had that boldness or that confidence. I mean, my goodness, look at Peter. Before Pentecost, Peter is cowering at Jesus' trial. He's hanging back, warming himself over the fire, saying bad words so people don't think he's with Jesus. Everything, I mean, impetuous, everything you can put on Peter, he was, and yet here we are. Brother Charles likes to say here he was speaking at the main, he was the main speaker at the conference. And 3,000 people got saved. What happened between the two? I'll tell you what happened. The power of God's Holy Spirit came on, on him, just like Jesus said, Acts 1-8. And now he had a boldness. A confidence. Interestingly enough, I read earlier Mark sixteen eighteen, where he ascended to heaven right in front of their eyes. The next verse says this, and they went out and preached everywhere. How could they go out and preach everywhere? They got the Holy Spirit. Another thing that happens when he empowers his church is that it transforms lives. Our lives are transformed by the power of his spirit. He writes this to the church of Corinth, and we all, everybody say all. See, that includes you. When you say all, you know, it means all. Is there still a detergent named all? That's sad that I don't know that. See, we don't use all at our house. We use gain. And we all are being transformed into the same image, that image is Jesus Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He pours out his Spirit, having ascended to the right hand of the Father. And because of that, we experience Ongoing transformation. Ongoing newness of life. Ongoing victory in him because of that. So, just in time. Remember that Jesus is presently reigning as king. And here's the key. He remains active and engaged in our world and in our lives. He is not absent. He is not in some corner of the, of the universe, uh, just ply, plying his time, biding his time, waiting for that moment when he comes back. He's, he is active and he's engaged in your life. Empty tomb, active savior. Therefore, what we do is we live boldly, 
we live confidently and strategically as servants of the exalted king of the heavens. That's what he did. This is what we do because we have the power of that spirit. We have that empowerment. And that's because the work that he began on earth is now being carried out by his body, the church. You know, we're we're in a series called The Church, Which is His Body. And we're really emphasizing that we're not talking about an institution. We're not talking about an organization. We're talking about an organic body that he has assembled and continues to assemble. And so the work on earth is being done by his organic body in the earth. And we will do that. We will continue to carry on his work because he's our ascended Lord. We will continue to that day that comes the end. There, There will be an end. And we understand that the kingdom of God is now, but we also understand that the kingdom of God is later. There will be a consummation. There will be a day when the completeness of God's kingdom will be finalized. He tells us about it in And we're going to close with these three verses. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Our ascended Lord sitting on the throne, governing his body, and we are doing the work of his kingdom in the earth until that day that there is an ultimate consummation of the kingdom, and he presents this kingdom to God the Father. I can't tell you what that looks like. I can't tell you when that's going to happen. I can tell you this much. Take one hand and put it on the right hand of the plow. Take the left hand put it on the left handle of the plow and plow. And keep on plowing until such day. Don't be looking in the sky trying to figure out when that day's coming. Don't be, don't be, you know, Brother Charles said last week, Jesus said he didn't know when it was going to happen. All he had to do was read some of our books. And he might have figured that out. But put your hand on the plow and do the work of the kingdom until such time. Somebody said, what is your eschatology? What do you believe about the rapture and the end times? I said, I'll tell you what I believe. I want, when he comes back, I want him to find me so doing. He said, blessed is the servant when his master returns, he finds him so doing. You know, I don't care if it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib. I don't care about all of that. What I do care about are my hands on the plow when he comes back. If it's, my hands are on the plow, then whatever works out, that's good. I'm for it. Because he is our ascended Lord.